Are we ready? We are. This thing on? <laughs> <laughs> This is Josh Barrow. And this is Ken White. And welcome to our new podcast, Serious Trouble. Yes, we are back. Uh, I appreciate the many of you who have been asking on Twitter and by email and in person and other platforms, when are you going to do something again with Ken? When are you and Ken coming back? We're back. This is us. We're back. This is the new podcast. And uh, we're, we're really thrilled about it. And Ken, I'm, I'm particularly, I'm really thrilled to be working with you again on something very fun in audio. Uh, likewise, Josh, I've been missing uh, our weekly discussions of these issues, and I'm very glad we're back. And I'm uh, also happy uh, to be with our audience again. Uh, they missed us, and, and we missed them. Yeah. And so when you say these issues, when we we ended all the president's lawyers, which had run on KCRW for a bit more than three years uh, back at, in, in late 2021, uh, Ken and I and, and Sarah Fay, our producer, we had a couple of intentions. We wanted to do another show together, and we thought maybe it could be a little bit less about Donald Trump this time. Less about Donald Trump and less necessarily <laughs> about the various lawyers, to use the term generously, orbiting uh, Donald Trump. Yes. And so uh, we, we settled on the name Serious Trouble. It's partly a, a reference to Very Serious, the uh, the newsletter and podcast that uh, Sarah and I have been putting out on Substack since January. And partly we, we talk about a lot of people who are in serious trouble or who might be in serious trouble or who people contend are in serious trouble, even if they're not. And so uh, that's, we're going to look at all kinds of uh, serious legal trouble on this show and maybe some even that is uh, less than serious. And the other thing we wanted to do, Josh, that I'm looking forward to doing is sometimes take slightly deeper dives into some of the areas of law that are in the news and often, as we often grumble, not well discussed or described in the news. So as people get into serious trouble in <laughs> federal or state criminal law or defamation or all sorts of uh, civil extravaganzas, we're going to take deeper dives into some of those areas and uh, talk about them and explain them to our listeners. Yeah, I think we'll finally figure out what RICO is. Well, I'm not promising anything. <laughs> So uh, for this first episode, we have a couple of topics to talk about today. Uh, one, I, I know th this show is going to be much less about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump is very much in the news this week with the January 6 hearings. And we're going to be talking about the case that's being laid out there and how it relates to any potential criminal case uh, that could be brought against uh, Donald Trump or other associates of his related to events surrounding the certification of the 2020 election. The other thing we're going to talk a little bit about is the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which is over. It's It's been sort of funny for me, Ken, is we've been on this hiatus. We covered so many defamation cases on the on all the president's lawyers, and you have particular expertise on defamation. And then we had this news event that that perfectly aligned with our hiatus that was like the, the highest profile defamation trial that I can ever remember happening in the United States. And I couldn't decide whether I was pleased or displeased uh, that we were not able to be part of the Amber Heard Johnny Depp scrum. Well, you know, uh, I found the scrum kind of unsettling and gross, actually. And I thought that it was, uh, there was a whole lot of tribalism that didn't have a lot to do with the actual issues involved. Uh, and it became sort of a, uh, a social media nightmare, uh, in my opinion. But uh, there are some very serious issues there. And like you said, uh, it, it's not just the highest profile defamation case we've seen recently. It's also one of the very few that go to trial. Uh, most defamation cases get resolved one way or the other before trial. And this was uh, an outlier. 
Yeah. And so we will, in, in a little bit later in the show, we'll be talking about the, the verdicts in that case and whether they were justifiable. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about Trump. And, and before that, I, I just want to lay out a little bit about the show because, you know, we're really excited to be coming back, uh, but we're going to need all of your help to spread the word about the show, to reestablish ourselves as an audio presence on the internet, and to, to get as many people as possible listening to this. So first of all, if you're excited that we're back, please tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, your online friends, tweet about it in an obnoxious and incessant manner. Um, you can find everything about the show at SeriousTrouble.show. That's the URL. The show is hosted through Substack, but the URL for the show is SeriousTrouble.show. Um, you can sign up for it as a newsletter. It's not going to be a ton of written content beyond the show, but that will let you know every time we, we post a new episode or any developments that are happening with the show, you'll find all the past episodes there. Um, you can also listen to the show through your regular podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, but it, it's important to sign up through SeriousTrouble.show in part in order to maintain that connection, but also because uh, this is going to be, there's going to be a free podcast and there's going to be a paid version of the podcast. Uh, we're going we're gonna to put this show out almost every week. We're going to put it out at least 40 times a year, um, but only some of those shows are going to be available to everyone for free. Some of those are going to be behind a paywall. And in there, we're going to have all sorts of bonus content, including, you know, so, some of the episodes will only be for those paying subscribers. There will be comment threads on the show that are only for paying subscribers. Uh, we'll be taking questions from listeners in those subscriber-only shows. You can ask us whether things are Rico, and you can make Ken answer that question. Uh, you can still you can find out whether Michael Avenatti is a good lawyer or a good jailhouse lawyer. Uh, and again, most importantly, it's those exclusive episodes. Part of this is going to be only behind that paywall. And the way that you get access to that is you sign up through there. There'll be an email link. It, it'll create a feed that you can put in your regular podcast player. I, I assure you the, pro the process is very simple and will be laid out very clearly in that email. But basically, you go there, you sign up uh, for $6 a month or $60 a year. Uh, there's also a discount uh, for existing paid subscribers to Very Serious. Uh, you get half off of that for a year. So it's only $3 a month or $30 for the year. Um, if you are an insane super fan uh, of the uh, Josh and Ken experience. Uh, you can pay $250 to be a founding member uh, and we'll give you a delightful mug that says, I survived the Josh and Ken podcast hiatus. Um, but in any case, go there. Even if you're signing up for free, uh, go there and, uh, and you'll get uh, all of the, uh, the, at least the, the free components of this show. And, you know, we know that there are a lot of podcasts out there that people listen to. And uh, it's easy once a show like ours has gone on hiatus for six months to completely forget about them. I think there is <laughs> as many podcasts out there as there are opinionated uh, white guys in America. And so we so, can... Some of us have two podcasts. Or more. <laughs> uh, so so uh, to the extent you can help us by getting the word out that we're back and that we're talking about things that we hope will interest people and engage them, uh, we'd appreciate it. So that would be a big help. So put it out there, tell people, and get it on social media. Yeah, please. Yes. Okay. Uh, let's catch up on news. The January 6th hearing. So I was I was interested in the approach that they have taken with these hearings so far and a, and a little more impressed than I expected to be. Because I always feel like politically a problem with doing presentations about the January 6th riot is that it, it happened in front of all of us on national television. And the exhortations that the then president Donald Trump made to people to, you know, go and fight like hell happened on national TV. Uh, and so, you know, you can learn specifics about, you know, allegedly Trump said to someone, maybe maybe my supporters have the right idea about we should hang Mike Pence. By and large, what he did, he did in public. And the moral evaluations, and the political evaluations you could make about that, I think were already pretty clear at the time. And so a project of trying to get people to care more or to change their opinions about this, I feel like is, is challenging because of that. 
So I was interested that the hearing really seemed focused on making a legal case, a criminal case, or the, the, the case that members of the committee would like the Justice Department to make, that former President Trump not only behaved in an abominable manner or an impeachable manner, but that he behaved in a criminal manner. Uh, and specifically, they, they've already said this in filings, and they, they back this up in the, in, the, in the live presentation. There's a couple of statutes uh, that the committee has contended to the Justice Department that President Trump violated, that he sought to obstruct an official proceeding uh, by trying to get then-Vice President Mike Pence to refuse to count duly certified electoral votes, and then also that through that process, he uh, committed fraud against the United States. And so I'm, I'm interested in what, what, what you think about that presentation. I thought it was effective, uh, Josh, and I thought it was more disciplined than I anticipated. And, you know, the, I, I went into it, I admit, with expectations very low. And in fact, I wasn't even going to watch it until I started seeing some reactions to it, because I, I expected that the typical congressional sideshow, which is, you know, everyone taking their five or 10 minutes to bloviate, to get on camera for their constituents. But uh, although I, I wouldn't exactly call this a professional prosecutorial presentation, it was substantially more disciplined than you usually get from Congress. It was more focused. It was less, look at me, uh, I'm talking. And it actually had specific goals that it seemed reasonable it could meet. Uh, you're right that they had a lot of focus on those two potential crimes, obstruction of an official proceeding and fraud on the United States. And uh, the interesting thing was they seemed to understand that in part, the big lift here is not so much uh, are there facts which could potentially show violations of those statutes. It's does the United States Department of Justice have the political will to go through with it? And this struck me as an effort to uh, try to encourage the Department of Justice to cowboy up and to uh, go through with the extraordinarily difficult, politically controversial, potentially dangerous uh, process of maybe actually bringing some charges against a former president or people in his close orbit. Well, so, I mean, aside from the political difficulty of bringing those charges, a, a question that prosecutors would ask any time is, you know, what are our odds of securing a conviction on this? How solid is this case? And my understanding is that the, the big legal challenge here is, is an intent problem, that you have to show that the former president corruptly sought to interfere with an, an official proceeding. And, and in order to do that, you have to show that he knew that he was not entitled to the thing that he was seeking. So that he knew that he lost the election. He knew that, you know, that Georgia or these various other states had not, in fact, cast a plurality of votes for him. And that when he sought to change the count of the electoral vote from those states, he was trying to falsify that count, that you have to prove that he knew that. Because that seems hard, right? Because they, they, they trotted out all of these people to say that they had told Donald Trump that that was the case, that he had not won the election. And they showed that those people had good reasons to argue that, that former President Trump did not have a good reason to think that he had won the election. But that doesn't show what's in his mind, right? And it's always, the, I mean, this was something that has come up with us for years, that when, when a, in court, if you have to show something about Donald Trump's state of mind, that's a real problem, because it's hard to demonstrate what Donald Trump's state of mind is. So how did they, how did they do with that, showing that a prosecutor could actually meet that intense standard, show, show that Trump knew, knew that he wasn't entitled to what he was seeking? Well, what they did was bring multiple witnesses to attest that Trump was told repeatedly by different people that these claims were bogus, that there was no 
evidence of real election fraud, certainly not on the scale that would result in any change to the outcome. So, uh, I mean, there's never been a way to prove directly what's in somebody's mind, uh, right? And you and you have jury instructions that are standard about this, about how we have to infer what was in somebody's mind by a, a series of things, including their actions, their words, what happened in front of them, that type of thing. And so for a long time, we've known and we've been talking about this uh, bizarrely American paradox that the crazier you act, the more you can get away with under the law in some ways, that because Donald Trump is such an outsized personality, such a, a trash talker who seems so normally disconnected from reality and from you know, what he says actually meaning things in the way other people use words, that it's much harder to show his intent. Uh, I think what this, this committee did a pretty good job of doing is putting on the best case for why a jury would believe that he knew uh, that there was no there there, that the theory he was pushing was nonsense and that he did it anyway. So uh, the the standard for what a corrupt intent is is not as well developed as some other areas of, of criminal law, but it's pretty clear that if if you knew there was no legitimate purpose to what you were doing, you didn't have the right to do it, that that can rise to the level of corrupt intent. And it may be that simply being reckless about that, uh, disregarding everything in front of you and pressing forward without any real basis to believe it, uh, the sort of uh, stubborn refusal to acknowledge reality may also be sufficient for corrupt intent. So the trick here uh, is to overcome federal prosecutors' normal aversion to tough cases, normal aversion to rolling the dice with a jury, and um, very understandable reluctance to take on this uh, politically uh, apocalyptic type of thing that could dominate uh, the Justice Department for years and just kind of make them think they've got no choice. You mentioned reckless disregard there, that it could be enough to show that Trump was presented this information and should have understood it and, and acted so recklessly in rejecting it. Uh, that that created corrupt intent. That sounds like the actual malice standard. Yeah, exactly. That's something that we've talked about a lot in defamation cases, that if you if you say something false and damaging to the reputation of a public figure, in order to prove defamation, that person has to show either that you knew the thing you said was false or that you spoke with reckless disregard for the truth, uh, that you were presented with ample evidence that should have caused you to know it was false and you went ahead and proceeded anyway. And so that's that's obviously easier than having to show that you knew would that be the standard for corrupt intent in a, in a criminal trial? I mean, would that would that be in the jury instructions? If there's a dispute about what it means to have corrupt intent, that's not a jury question, right? That's a question for the judge. And I assume one that they would have to lay out in the jury instructions to tell the jury what kind of state of mind they're even looking for in Donald Trump before deciding whether he committed this crime. Well, sure. The, the, the jury instruction, the definition of the offense you're going to give the jury is a matter for the judge. And then it's a matter for the jury to determine whether or not the prosecution proved that uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. I think a lot of the time we sort of um, overestimate how deeply a jury analyzes this type of thing or how closely they follow instructions. I think most practitioners would say that jurors kind of get a big picture gestalt 
of it and then find their way to the result rather than going through the intricacies of, of these very carefully crafted jury instructions. And because of that, I think probably a real world federal jury um, handling a hypothetical criminal uh, obstruction of justice charge against Trump is going to take kind of a big picture, big story approach to it and not necessarily care that much about the exact contours of of this but you know the 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 prosecutors will still tend to, particularly federal prosecutors still tend to very stubbornly cling to the idea that uh jurors follow jury instructions and that they have to believe that 12 people who think like they do would find beyond a reasonable doubt that this particular definition is met to answer your substantive question, right, you're drawing this this comparison to defamation law, where uh, for it to be defamation, when you say something about a public figure, you have to show actual malice, which is defined as knowing the statement is false or having reckless disregard that it's false. Reckless disregard meaning here that you deliberately look away from evidence um, that it's uh, true. Now, in criminal law, usually... Uh, criminal law avoids making kind of uh, distinctions like that. But there are some doctrines uh, about deliberate disregard uh, of evidence and things like that. And I think here in the case of defining what corruptly is, uh, that ultimately a judge is going to allow some sort of instruction to the effect that it can be corruptly if you deliberately disregard all evidence and stubbornly hew to something for which there is no evidence. Uh, the question is exactly what the contours of that are going to be. I assume that's an issue that would be appealed if there was a conviction, that there would be a dispute over whether that was a correct instruction, whether whether you can really establish corrupt intent with, without establishing that he, that he knew that he had lost the election. Is this something that would be likely, you know, I assume many years from now at this point, because I assume you wouldn't be able to have this appeal until until after a verdict had been rendered? that this could end up in the laps of the Supreme Court again? Sure, it could. But again, the the a judge may be cautious and the prosecutors may even be cautious and decide that they want to go for a more conservative approach, which is to prove to a jury that Donald Trump actually knew that his claims were false. And you know what? I, I, I think, again, a jury is going to go with a big picture. And I think a jury that wants to convict Trump is going to find their way to saying he did know that everything he was saying was bogus. You know, uh, I was once in front of a federal judge who went off on a 10-minute uh, diversion into the nature of knowledge. Uh, <laughs> and how do we know what we know? Uh, this was during taking the guilty plea of a uh, drug trafficker with about a fourth grade education and, and no English. So it wasn't the ideal place, uh, in my opinion, for a lesson on epistemology. But I mean, I think people will decide, you know what, he knew in the way that matters to us for this decision. Uh, and I, I suspect that he will, they will um, come back with that. What would a legal defense look like for Trump in a case like that? I, I assume it's a matter of arguing he genuinely believes that he won the election. I assume um, one client issue there is I assume Trump would want that to veer into, I won the election. And, you know, I believed this because it is true. So I, first of all, I imagine that there might be some client control issues. I can't imagine what it's like to have 
Donald Trump is a, is a criminal defense client. Um, but what do you what do you do in front of that jury to try to convince them that Donald Trump did not try to corruptly obstruct an official proceeding? I think you do exactly that. I think you both because he's going to demand it and because it helps try to put on the evidence that, in fact, there was election fraud. And, and this is the reason you want to do it. First of all, you're going for the holdout juror. You're, you're going for the, the mistrial, the person who's going to buy into these, frankly, nutty theories that no honest or serious person believes. Um, and, you know, there, there are plenty of conspiracy theorists out there, and there are people obviously vulnerable to this talk. So it's not an unreasonable goal. Can you call, like, Lynn Wood or Sidney Powell is an expert witness here. Is that allowed? Like, is the, isn't that like a Dober problem? I don't think you'd call them as an expert witness, but you could certainly try to call them to establish Trump's state of mind. Okay. Uh, to say that, you know, we believed it was bogus and we explained to Donald Trump all the reasons we believed it was bogus and we did so completely sincerely and he reacted suggesting he believed us. So in trying to prove up that the um, election was was somehow fraudulent, you're helping your defense that he believed it was fraudulent, or at least you're creating a reasonable doubt about whether or not he believed it was fraudulent. And you also just, you know, you're filling the air with chaff. You're, you're, you're flooding uh, the zone with garbage uh, that tends to make the uh, some jurors perhaps to say, you know, this was all crazy, so it's hardly uh, surprising that Trump would think maybe it's true. What about fraud on the United States? I mean, because the at least the state of mind stuff might be somewhat difficult, but the the fact that there was this official proceeding that Donald Trump sought to obstruct seems very clear to me in terms of the evidence. He specifically asked Mike Pence not to count these votes. Fraud on the United States just sort of seems to me like a vaguer crime. What does it what does it add to you to also charge that? That's a good question. So first of all, the fraud on the United States, uh, interestingly, comes from the plain vanilla conspiracy statute. Okay, 18 U.S.C. 371 is the statute that you charge in federal court anytime you're charging anyone with a conspiracy to commit any federal crime. And it just says if two or more people conspire to commit any offense against the United States. Okay, but there's also this clause that says, or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof for any manner, for any purpose. So that clause of the statute, the fraud on the United States, is not the best developed area in terms of case law and what exactly it means. So I would expect a lot of battles over whether, you know, trying to trying to go through a procedure to contest votes, whether that can be defrauding the United States uh, under established case law. Because it's, it, you know, the easy uh, idea is we're trying to defraud the United States by like submitting false claims or claiming money that we're not entitled to or, or things like that. Well, the president would draw a salary. Sure. If he was reelected. That's, that's a good point. Could you hang your hat on that? You could try. Um, that might be one of the, the, uh, uh, better ideas, although probably the defense to that would be, yeah, but you know, someone's going to get the salary no matter what. Um, so it's it's just a poorly developed area of law. I, I think you've got these competing 
instincts and, and competing uh, practices among prosecutors. On the one hand, there is a bit of a belt and suspenders practice, right, where uh, you want multiple theories. So in case the jury doesn't like one, maybe they'll want the other. On the other hand, you've got the keep it simple uh, practice, uh, which is that, you know, generally presenting it in a simpler way is better. Now, having just two counts, two theories is is relatively restrained and and probably doable, uh, as opposed to some people out here who are saying, oh, I now see these 10 federal crimes based on the January 6th <laughs> committee and we should do all of them, which is which is nonsense and not the way the federal prosecutors actually think. Yeah, I think one thing that might be a little surprising to people about the possibility of criminal charges for the former president here is that at least initially, a lot of the talk around this focused around the riot as a possible area of Trump having criminal liability. And hundreds of other people have been charged for their actions in the Capitol riot specifically. President Trump gave this speech that I think in a layman's sense was inciting of that crowd, telling them to go down to the Capitol and fight like hell. I assume it would be that there would be a really weak theory to try to charge him for literally inciting the riot, because unlike the conversations with Mike Pence, where he specifically asked him to do the thing that obstructed the, the official proceeding, his statements to the rioters were a lot more vague about exactly what he wanted them to do. He did not have a direct two-way conversation with them in the way that he did with Mike Pence. I assume that that, that is a much less attractive avenue in terms of trying to prove that the former president committed some sort of crime. It is. I mean, the committee is putting on evidence that people came and did violence at the Capitol because of Trump's exhortations. But I don't get the sense they're trying to sell this as incitement to riot or as that part as being criminal. You know, it's the Brandenburg standard here where you'd have to show that his words were intended and likely to cause imminent uh, lawless action. They don't seem to be trying to meet that standard. It seems rather that they're trying to show the consequences of his behavior in general to almost shame the Justice Department into doing something. So you're right that I think that where they're showing evidence that's plausible is really in the direct conspiracy to interfere with a vote count by making all these crazy arguments. And to, to return just for a second to the whole idea of um, fraud on the government, uh, fraud on the United States. Again, the statute is usually used for plain vanilla conspiracy to commit a federal crime. The defraud the United States is much less often used, but there's some case law from almost the turn of the 20th century, uh, 1910, basically, that says that to conspire to defraud the United States, and this is quoting from Chief Justice Taft, it means primarily to cheat the government out of property or money, but it also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. So I think what they're thinking about here is basically just using this as another way to say um, obstruct an official proceeding, uh, to use the same facts, the, the same conduct that he was challenging an election in a way he knew was dishonest uh, to fit two different statutes. One trend that we've seen over the last couple of decades at the Supreme Court is a, is a real reluctance uh, to criminalize political activity. 
the former uh, governor of Virginia, Bob McDonnell, was uh, was convicted uh, of misuse of his office, basically, for trying to do various uh, uh, actions related to the University of Virginia on behalf of a political donor. Um, and the Supreme Court threw out that conviction. They threw out the convictions related to Bridgegate, um, where the theory had basically been that these these public officials in the state of New Jersey had misused a government resource, the George Washington Bridge, uh, to punish a recalcitrant mayor by creating a traffic jam in his city. They found that, that whatever that was, that wasn't criminal activity. And so I assume one argument that you would raise if you were Donald Trump on any of these cases is that Trump was engaged in politics, that there was a dispute over an election. Uh, and that he was trying to get a favorable outcome in the dispute, and that he engaged in political activity to that purpose. How that should be addressed as a political question, or that he had a First Amendment right to do various things here. What is the would, would the courts be sympathetic to any of those arguments that basically this was fundamentally political activity and therefore could not be criminal? So I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. He's going to try this argument, and he is going to try to draw those parallels to Supreme Court cases dealing with uh, wire and mail fraud uh, statutes uh, in prior prosecutions under the, th the so-called theory of uh, theft of honest services, uh, that the thing of value that's being defrauded in those cases was the right of the people to the honest services of members of the government. The Supreme Court has really not liked that theory or cases related to it. In terms of whether it works, I think that if they can meet the elements here, uh, that it is a tougher lift for Trump. If the prosecutors can meet the elements. Exactly. So I, I think in terms of, you know, uh, interfering uh, or obstruction of a government function uh, through dishonesty and even fraud on the United States, I think that uh, it's it's a tougher argument that uh, here and that you have to do more of a, of a reach in terms of statutory interpretation to come up with that type of defense. That's not to say that there aren't judges who I think will do it. I think there are some Trump appointed judges who will do it. And I, I would uh, estimate there's, you know, a few votes on the Supreme Court for that. I don't think it's really a principled theory. I think at some point you get to this point where you know, political activity is somehow outside the scope of the criminal law, and that's clearly not right. Uh, but I, I absolutely think they'll try, and I think there are some judges who will go for it. So, but it sounds like overall, your view is pretty strongly that charges should be brought here, that, that there is, at, on this narrow set of charges, you, it's not, you know, not throw in the kitchen sink, not charge con seditious conspiracy, not charge anything really even directly related to the riot, but related to this count of the, of the electoral votes, it sounds like you think they've made a strong case that justice ought to charge here, and also that they would have a very strong chance to prevail in a trial, which I would note also would presumably occur in Washington, D.C. So you're going to tend to draw a jury that will both be relatively informed about these events and relatively to the left politically, which would seem to be advantageous to the Justice Department. It, it sounds like you think they should they should go ahead. I think they, they should. Um but let me give some qualifiers to what you just said, Josh. Um, first of all, I, I don't know that the Justice Department has the political will to do it. And this is purely a matter of political will. Are they willing to really make the rest of Biden's term about this, really let this dominate the the uh, affairs of the government, um, let it be used in all the political ways it's going to be, and take these risks institutional risks that are involved. When you say the Justice Department, 
are you referring specifically to, to Attorney General Merrick Garland? Like who who they're, they're they're afraid that like people will see DOJ as politicized if they do this? I feel like that ship already sailed. Sure, it has, but you you still got this these people there concerned about how it's going to look and how it's going to affect, let's be blunt, their careers. Uh, so, you know, in the sense of uh, if you come for the king, you best not miss. Uh, I think they're worried that this type of thing is going to be all consuming and maybe not successful. Uh, and you combine that with the federal prosecutor's traditional you know, a rude person would say timidness, a uh, less rude person would say caution, um, and it's a tough lift. I'm not sure they have the will to do it. I do think they should. I think it's historically important. I think the showing of knowing wrongdoing is very strong and that the what the committee has shown makes it stronger. I don't think that I'm suggesting that it's likely to prevail. I think it could prevail, but I think there's some serious obstructions to it. One is, I think that there's going to be all sorts of legal impediments. I think he's going to file all sorts of motions, and he's going to seek emergency review by writ from uh, federal, the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, which the court may give since it's such an extraordinary situation to be prosecuting a former president. So I can see a lot of delays from that type of thing. I could even see the United States Supreme Court being willing to get involved in some sort of um, intermediate review before the case goes to trial over these types of issues. Again, because it's such an extraordinary situation. Normally, of course, in a federal criminal case, you have to wait to the end till you're convicted and sentenced before you get review. But there are opportunities for extraordinary review. And this is exactly the type of case where those would happen. Um, I also think that there are reasons to be concerned whether in America you can get a jury that will uh, vote 12-0 to convict Donald Trump. Even drawn from residents of the District of Columbia? Even drawn from residents of District of Columbia, I think it could be a, a crapshoot. I think certainly I would much rather be trying in District of Columbia than than most other places in the United States. But, I mean, uh, you know, 35% of the country believes in, in some of this <laughs> stuff. Uh, that's where we are. We are extremely divided politically uh, as a country. So... I think it's worth the effort and that the effort is important, though. One other thing before, before we move on to uh, the uh, much more elevated matter of uh, Johnny Depp and Amber, Amber Heard, we saw a bunch of tape from depositions in this presentation from the January 6th committee, uh, people describing their efforts to tell Donald Trump that he'd lost the election and all of these crazy people around him and how what an, what an insane environment it was in the White House between November 3rd of 2020 and January 6th of, of 2021. A lot of these people almost looked like they were enjoying their deposition, especially Bill Barr. Like... The tape almost looked like from a documentary when you do like those like confessional interviews or even on a reality show, people talking with exasperation about, oh, my God, all these crazy people around me. And it's sort of interesting. I, I always assume that a deposition is like a root canal. Did that feel tonally weird to you at all? Was this like weird compared to like what a deposition is normally like? The tone was unsettling. And what I sort of put it down to was the general sensibility that congressional proceedings are bullshit. So uh, <laughs> because, you know, past congressional proceedings about Trump have led to impeachment proceedings, uh, but most of the time, I think 
American sensibilities that proceedings before Congress are political nonsense and posturing. And I don't think it has the level of dignity or seriousness that you associate even with a civil deposition in a slip and fall case, uh, <laughs> let alone testifying before a grand jury or in trial. So I, I, I think the committee may have even encouraged that atmosphere uh, a bit. Uh, and I think that was a shrewd thing to do because I think you get a lot more honest and impactful testimony when people are thinking that, hey, you know, this is a blast. Let me just let it all hang out <laughs> and say what I think. Yeah, and exactly. Barr was very much just enjoying himself just like somebody who hasn't substantially uh, participated in the fall of the republic, and, and, you know, like he ought to be laughing about what he did or didn't do. Yeah. So I thought it was good to, for them to let their guard down to talk about this stuff and, uh, you know, why they did, again, a psychological, uh, sooner or later, you know, when we first started talking years ago on all the president's lawyers, we lamented how some people didn't seem to take this seriously. I, I'm thinking in particular of Carter Page, uh, <laughs> who just seemed to, to uh, traipse from event to event saying whatever he felt like saying. From television studio to television studio. Exactly. And it drove me crazy. And now a lot of these people in these committee hearings seem to have a somewhat similar uh, attitude. And while I think that's appalling on a lot of levels, I also think that it may be a way to get closer to truth sometimes uh, if they're not so buttoned up and unwilling to talk. You know, and that is certainly a technique that lawyers use in deposition or in court to try to cultivate a rapport with the witness in a way that doesn't doesn't remind them that the lawyer is trying to eat them alive and <laughs> encourages them instead to see the lawyer as their pal. The the funny thing though with going all the way back to Carter Page is like as far as we can tell like Carter Page didn't commit a crime and they may have had a good reason to get the initial FISA warrant against him but it looks like the renewals of the FISA warrant were improper. Like Carter Page was more or less in the right in the end. Well, that that is a, a convoluted subject, but I will agree with you that the FISA process against him uh, is very problematic and in a perfect world would be used as a reason to dramatically revise FISA rules for everyone's benefit. But, you know, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> So, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. So, first of all, there was this media circus uh, and lots of, as you say, I think tribal uh, opinions formed about this case without a lot of relationship uh, to the evidence of the specific actions committed on both sides. I also think, you know, broadly, these are two people who behave terribly, um, which is part of why I find the, the level of sympathy that formed in society for either of them to be a little bit strange. This all felt like something that should not have been our concern and was inflicted upon the country, but very willingly taken by people who were extremely entertained by it. And that's like even the SNL sketch about it was like, I'm going to allow this evidence because it's fun and this case is for fun. But I was also, I, I was sort of shocked by the verdict where, you know, the, you had 
Johnny Depp sued Amber Heard, and Amber Heard countersued Johnny Depp. And the way that we have talked about defamation cases for years is about how difficult it is to prove defamation, especially against a public figure. Um, and that, you know, statements have to be really specific. Uh, and then also in this instance where, you know, again, these are two people who behave terribly, I, you know, it seems like a, a lot of these statements seem, you know, at least plausibly enough true uh, that it was really strange that you would have a, a verdict in favor of either of them. And you had a, 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 a defamation trial in England, which has more favorable laws toward defamation plaintiffs that uh, Johnny Depp had brought previously and lost, with a judge there determining these statements that were made about Johnny Depp being an abuser were plausibly enough true that he could not prevail. And so you have this jury verdict then where you have these, you know, really vague statements like Amber Heard said, two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. The, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't name Johnny Depp by name. It doesn't say anything about the nature of the abuse. As her attorneys tried to argue in the case, you know, if he abused her even once, then the statement is true and she, and, and she cannot be liable for defamation. How did this end up with a verdict for Johnny Depp, and then on one of the counts brought by Amber Heard, similarly, a, you know, a similar vague statement by Johnny Depp's lawyer on his behalf also found that that he had defamed her. It seemed, it, it, is this verdict just wrong? So, Josh, I'm I'm less comfortable opining about the rightness or wrongness of the verdict based on the evidence, because I think there was a lot of evidence, a lot of recorded statements, a lot of testimony. And I think whether or not a reasonable jury could have got there really requires an in-depth analysis of all of that stuff. So I'm not prepared to say the jury got it wrong because I didn't sit through all of it. And I think to really make that call, you do have to sit through all of it. That said, I find it somewhat surprising that a jury could get there for legitimate reasons. Because like you said, um, the statements that Depp is suing over are awfully vague. Now, a lot of people express surprise that he could sue at all, given that she didn't name him, didn't use his name. That's not really a, an issue. I mean, it's very well established in defamation that if a, a, if a person would understand you to be referring to a particular person, that you don't have to name them. But like you said, uh, he sued over her saying things like saying, I, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. I became a public figure representing domestic abuse. I had the rare vantage point of seeing in real time how institutions protect men accused of abuse. And yes, absolutely. You could, you can, can interpret those as saying Johnny Depp abused me. Uh, but you can also interpret them, frankly, as saying that I became perceived as a victim of domestic abuse and I, I saw how society re reacts to that. Um, so given all the evidence uh, that I heard, I found it somewhat surprising that a jury could get to the point where it found that the statements were provably false statements of fact that were false and that she knew were false. Uh, I, uh, but again, before I go and say a jury's wrong on something like that, where it's very fact intensive, I would want to see all the evidence. And it's possible uh, that the jury just decided she's a big liar and she was really lying about almost everything. But it would, it would really have to be almost everything, right? Because of the vagueness about what the nature of the abuse and the or even the extent of the abuse that she experienced. It would have to be more than just establishing that she lied about a lot of things. It would be that she lied about 
such a large fraction of the things that the statement was under any reasonable interpretation was false. Exactly. So there's 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 this doctrine of substantial truth, also known as the gist or the sting doctrine, where if kind of the thrust of the statement is true, it doesn't matter if some of the details uh, are not true. And particularly because of the vagueness in which uh, her statements are framed, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty surprising that if the jury applied the law correctly, that they could get to that result. But I, I hesitate to say they got it wrong without listening to it all myself. Of course, my bias, as you know, is going to be against defamation claims and for defamation defense. But, you know, it, there was a lot of discussion of whether or not she was lying. And there were a lot of attacks on her. Some people saw that as sort of uh, a unfair and deliberate uh, besmirching of anyone who complains about uh, domestic violence or, or abuse. Uh, but sometimes juries, um, practically speaking, uh, wind up being pretty black and white and not nuanced. And they just decide they like you or they hate you. You're a truth teller or you're a liar. And once they get to that point, sometimes they stop looking at nuance. Uh, now, surprisingly, this jury uh, did find that um, Amber Heard was defamed by one of the statements of Adam Waldman, uh, Depp's lawyer. Uh, and it really seems as if they concluded that uh, it was false and knowingly false that she and her friends had created a hoax of the destruction of an apartment to make it look as if there had been a fight. So in that way, they're not being purely black and white. Uh, but that read to me almost like, hey, let's try to show some nuance here, or be even-handed, or that type of thing, because the big numbers came out for Johnny Depp. And, and that statement at least had a fair amount of specificity to it. It was not just like, Amber Heard's a big liar. He accuses her of lying about specific things, about having intentionally spilled wine in the apartment and roughed the place up to make it look like there had been damage that had been done by some sort of intruder. So it was, that's, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know the whole... The, I'm like you, I'm not deep into the, the specific evidence there, but this at least seems like the sort of statement that would be more plausible that you might prove falsity of because it has such a higher degree of specificity. Exactly. That would be an easier one to prove as false. Josh, you know, we're dealing with kind of a culture here where most Americans um, form very strong opinions about the guilt or innocence of a criminal defendant. Uh, or liability in a civil case, having only heard the barest fraction of what happened in the courtroom, and that only filtered through media, um, some of which is you know overtly biased and some of which doesn't really understand the issues. So I think a lot of people very strongly feel that this was right or this was wrong. And I think not too much of it is based on a thorough knowledge of what the evidence was, but that doesn't distinguish it from most other American cases. Uh, and the one about this is that there was tons of evidence, tons of witnesses, and it's very complicated. So, but I think people are really, as we tend to, using it as a big picture cultural conflict. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a conflict between women complaining about violence uh, and sexual abuse and men um, retaliating against that, that, or, you know, men versus women or whatever it is. And, uh, frankly, there are elements of that too. So mm -hmm. Amber Heard is by no means representative of the average American woman facing a defamation claim 
overclaims of sexual violence uh, or or physical abuse. And that is unfortunately increasingly prevalent. You know, you, you might know, Josh, that, that I try uh, as, I guess, a uh, uh, avocation to help connect people threatened with bogus defamation claims with pro mm-hmm. bono counsel. And I've done that for years. And over the last few years, kind of basically coexistent with the, the Me Too movement, um, more and more of the people coming to me for help have been women who have spoken out about being raped or sexually harassed or subjected to violence, who are then threatened with uh, defamation claims or sued for defamation here or in other countries. Um, from when it was once an outlier, it is now probably around a third of the requests I get are hmm. on that specific issue. Literally, uh, you know, more than a dozen a year, just to me, one person. So right. I think the concern that um, it's a problem that you can retaliate against claims of sexual abuse with defamation uh, claims is a completely legitimate one. On the other hand, I don't think that the truth of what actually happened in a situation is dictated by that. And I don't know what happened here. And I mm-hmm. didn't watch the trial carefully enough to say who I think is telling the truth or lying. Does this matter precedentially? I mean, I realize it's not like these uh, lawsuits are, are matters of state law. Um, this was a lawsuit in Virginia. It's not like literally precedent uh, for a case that might be heard in, in some other state. But I assume that this is going to encourage people to file more of those defamation claims in cases both where the statements about them are false and in cases where the statements are true. It should it should, it should encourage people to do that in, in both of those circumstances. Um, but I don't know whether this tells us that much about what future juries are likely to do with future cases involving different people. Because I don't know the extent to which the media circus celebrity aspect of this has has an unusual effect compared to a, 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 a case that might be between two people who are not famous actors. So I think you have to distinguish here between legal precedent and practical precedent. So legally, it's not likely to establish much of anything. Um, Most of the rules that are in the jury instructions are not particularly controversial. uh, And I don't see issues here where anyone's going to win by saying the trial judge got it wrong in defining defamation or defining what standard had to be met. The only, you know, reasonably controversial, I think, legal issue was probably whether a Virginia court had jurisdiction over Amber Heard uh, based on the impact in Virginia of her statement. She resides in California. Right. So jurisdiction for defamatory statements is still an issue of some legal controversy. But when you're talking about practical precedent, which isn't really precedent at all, but sort of an ambiguous feeling, it does have power. It emboldens people to think they want to sue. It um, makes people more worried they will be sued. It means lawyers seeing that someone made a big win here uh, are more likely to take cases on a contingency uh, and uh, take a risk on a case. Um, It uh, impacts the way insurance companies and parties think about what the settlement value of a case is. Uh, It it has a lot of sort of... um, emotional and social and kind of non-legal practical impact on the way people think whether or not a case is plausible and therefore whether or not they should bring it. What did you make of the ACLU's involvement here? I mean, this is this is one of the, I mean, there were so many odd 
aspects of this whole saga. But one was this op-ed that ran in the Washington Post in 2018 was not really written by Amber Heard. It was written by staff at the at the American Civil Liberties Union, at which she had a, a position as a as as an ambassador related to uh, to domestic abuse. Um, she promised that she was going to donate half of her divorce settlement to them, which she did not actually do, um, which is something that was discussed at the trial related to to her credibility. But like it, it seems like a, a bizarre distraction for the ACLU to have gotten involved in this case with no particular nexus to their to, to the work of their organization and getting in the middle of a of a dispute between two individuals that ended up leading to defamation litigation. I mean, it's interesting you didn't sue the ACLU. Well, first of all, you wouldn't want to sue the ACLU. You don't want to take on the 800-pound gorilla if you don't have to take <laughs> on the 800-pound gorilla. But um, yeah, I found it a little troublesome that they would ghostwrite an op-ed and be involved in that uh, without disclosure under circumstances in which they're doing it for someone who's promised massive funding. It, it may not be I- I- illegal, uh, but it, I think it makes me question their judgment and makes me question how trustworthy they are. This is happening in the context of the ACLU being broadly criticized from m- focusing on sort of traditional civil rights and civil liberties, and we defend any awful person uh, whose speech is being threatened without regard to whether we like the outcome or the people involved, to um, more what critics say is a set of progressive policy goals and interests, like violence against women. Uh, So uh, they're an independent organization. They can do whatever they want. But this is happening at the same time. There's that broad criticism that, you know, they're no longer the ACLU that defended Nazis marching at Skokie. Um, You know, they've decided to change the way they approach some First Amendment issues, they've gotten more interested in some, let's call them progressive political values, which is fine because they see those uh, as directly related to people's rights in America. But this kind of fits into that general movement. I, I think the criticisms of them are somewhat overstated, but there's definitely some there. There, They've moved away from a, the first thing is free speech for everyone, even for total assholes to a more typical progressive agenda, which they have a right to do. Oh, sure. I mean, you can be a general purpose progressive organization, but then you're a general purpose progressive organization like many other organizations with the same set of funders out there. Uh, I think that's enough serious trouble for this week. Ken, uh, thrilled to be back with you. Uh, Very good first episode. I'm very happy with this, and I'm really looking forward to to many more of these. Josh, I think that uh, there is a wealth of fun stuff to talk about out there. I'm glad we are spreading our wings and going beyond (laughs) the scope of the various uh, weirdos uh, surrounding uh, former President Trump. So many different weirdos uh, that, that, that we can address here. Uh, again, uh, if you're listening, please help us spread the word about Serious Trouble. You can find this episode in every major podcast app, but we really encourage you to go to SeriousTrouble.show. That's the URL, SeriousTrouble.show. Uh, send people to that website, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, most importantly, become a paid subscriber to the show. It's $6 a month or $60 a year. And if you're a true super fan, you can become a founding member for $250. You'll get that special limited edition I Survived the Ken and Josh podcast hiatus mug. That's really fun. Um, and again, if you're an existing subscriber to the Very Serious newsletter and podcast, uh, which you should be, by the way, that's at joshbarrow.com. Uh, if you're already paying for that, you get 50% off the first year uh, with Serious Trouble. So 
you know, everybody needs more podcast content. Uh, and I encourage you to get get every episode that we put out by becoming a paid subscriber. So again, you know, reach us, join the conversation. There's a comment section under this uh, under the the page for this episode of this show for uh, for paying subscribers. You can put comments in there. Ken and I will be popping in to, to look at your questions, either to answer them there or to use them as fodder for future shows. Um, that's also where you can support the show as a paying subscriber and where you can get those exclusive bonus episodes. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's Josh Barrow and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way very soon. <laughs>